The Writer Files, a member of the Podglomerate Network. I want to mention a great resource for writers, and this month's sponsor, Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. I'll expound later in the show, but the short version is this long-awaited book about the craft of creative writing from New York Times bestselling author Steve Almond sets out to debunk the well-meaning but misguided myths that hold us back from writing our deepest and most honest work. Pick up a copy today of Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, wherever you buy books, more soon. Greetings, scribes. I have got some exciting news to share. The Writer Files now has an exclusive Patreon community where subscribers will get exclusive access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and content from productivity and publishing experts each month. In the meantime, just head over to patreon.com slash thewriterfiles. It's free to join Patreon to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash thewriterfiles. Help us start something special. My problem with grad school was that I only had so much time to write during the course of the academic year. So I usually ended up binge writing novels in the summers. So I really tried to teach myself to write as fast and clean and tightly as possible so I could get those drafts done in the summer. And so over the course of my PhD, which was seven years, I think I wrote five novels. Not all of them are good or finished or like in any way presentable to the rest of the human race. But that's kind of like how I started and where I'm coming from in terms of how I got to where I am now. And welcome back to The Writer Files. This is your grateful host, Kelton Reed, wishing you pages, patience, and perseverance per usual. Mexican-American writer and historian Isabel Cañas spoke to me about how to binge write a novel, her fear of the dark, and swinging for the fences with her gothic debut, The Hacienda. Isabel is a speculative fiction writer and world traveler, currently working on a PhD dissertation in medieval Islamic literature, who writes fiction inspired by her research and heritage. Her debut novel is the highly anticipated gothic, The Hacienda, a haunted house story with a Latinx refresh, partly inspired by a home Isabel lived in when she was a child, one she still believes to this day is haunted. Described by the Washington Post as a gothic tale of doomed love and vengeful spirits, New York Times bestselling author Roshni Chakshi called the book a hypnotic, sinister tale that is equal parts terrifying and luxurious, a nightmare lined with velvet. In this file, Isabel and I discussed writing fantasy fan fiction and her convoluted juvenilia, why horror demands vulnerability from the author, on haunted houses, and the ghosts of colonialism and diaspora. Zero drafting, how to write 4,000 words a day, and a lot more. Stay calm and write on. And don't forget, you can always support this show by heading to writerfiles.fm, where you can also sign up for email updates, get links to merch, and other resources for writers. And if you're a fan of The Writer Files, please click follow to automatically see new interviews in your podcatcher as soon as they're published and drop us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you tune in to help other writers find us. All right, we are rolling once again on The Writer Files. I am honored today to be joined by a special guest. I have 
novelist and historian Isabel Cañas is joining us today. Thanks so much for taking time to do this. And um, I know you've got a busy schedule. Um, what's on your slate for today? <laughs> Thanks so much for having me, Kelton. You're the first of, I think, like eight people I'm chatting to today between 9am and 2.30pm. I think so. If I'm, yeah, I think eight, but it's back to back. So yeah. you're getting me nice and fresh. So oh, I'm going to be like at my best for this one. I think I worry about the two o'clock interview. I'm like, oh man, I'm going to wilt. I'm going to wilt like a daisy in the sun. Oh no. Well, hopefully um, you'll have a couple of short breaks to get a, mm-hmm. get a uh, refresher. But um, yeah, so are you uh, drinking some coffee or tea or I've had my coffee this morning um, since the pandemic started and my anxiety went ballistic. I have reined in my coffee consumption from my grad student (laughs) amount of entirely unhealthy to one cup a day. Okay. So I've had that and I'm just sipping some water. Nice, nice. Um, Well, yeah, I can't wait to talk to you about the Hacienda, of course, and your process as an author. Um, But yeah, take us back a little bit and let's do your superhero origin um, cause you mentioned grad school, of course, mm-hmm. and you're a world traveler, um, with an interesting circuitous path, mm-hmm. uh, to now debut novelist, but talk a little bit about w- the journey and kind of like what, what that means for you now. Yeah, I think I started to get really serious about writing novels specifically when I was 22 in my last year of university. Um, like many other writers, I have like a long convoluted backstory of like, my juvenilia. Like, of course, I wrote fan fiction when I was like 11 years old. Um, Lord of the Rings, to be specific. That was definitely my nerddom at the time. And I wrote constantly, but I had a very, when I was younger, but when I was 17, I had a really bad run-in with a writing instructor. I was doing um, college classes at Brown University and I was in a writing workshop for creative writing. And I was so excited because I was like, finally, someone's going to take me seriously and really help me be a better writer. And I wrote fantasy exclusively at the time. And um, anyone who's gotten an MFA or studied creative writing at the university level knows that there's a strong bias towards literary fiction in these institutions. Mm. And Mm -hmm. boy, oh boy, was I made abundantly clear of this fact by my instructor, who was actually like really mean to little 17-year-old me. So I actually stopped writing fiction all through college up until I was 22. I thought, I'm not good at this. I've been told I do it wrong and therefore I won't do it which is of course the wrong attitude to have. Mm, But I mm -hmm. think when you're 17 and told by somebody in a position of authority that you're doing something wrong, you really don't have any uh, way of convincing yourself otherwise. So I read a lot of poetry. I journaled constantly. Um, College was also the period I traveled quite a lot. I studied in St. Andrews, uh, which is a university in Scotland. And I did my third year abroad at the American University of Cairo, um, I lived in Turkey for a short while, usually in the summers studying Turkish. And I kind of bounced all over the place Hmm. and just became a very good people watcher, which is, I think, Mm -hmm. a critical part of my craft as a writer is people watching and daydreaming. So I spent many years doing that. And I decided, I think when I was 22, 21 or 22, that I wanted to become a novelist. And I had no idea where to start. Just no idea. So I just read a lot. And um, I wrote, I ended up writing my first novel when I was in the first year of my PhD program in 2016. Hmm. And once I figured that out and I started like devouring books on craft, you know, I got critiques um, from other writers. Um, I won like critique contests on Twitter where it's like, 
you know, a writer is giving away a query critique or a first 10 pages critique. So I tried to like bundle up as many of, as the, of those as I could or get into as many of those as I could. And I began studying craft like it was another class I was taking at my university. Like I just inhaled books on craft. Hmm. I listened to all sorts of podcasts on process. <sighs> my problem with grad school was that I only had so much time to write during the course of the academic year. So I usually ended up binge writing novels in the summers. <laughs> so I really tried to teach myself to write as fast and clean and tightly as possible so I could get those drafts done in the summer. And so over mm -hmm. the course of my PhD, which was seven years, I think I wrote five novels. Wow. Not all of them are good or finished or like in any way presentable to the rest of the human race. <laughs> but that's kind of like how I started and where I'm coming from in terms of how I got to where I am now. Amazing, amazing. So this is your debut novel, and um, it's a, a you know they're calling it a haunted house story mm -hmm. with a Latin X refresh and and a gothic horror debut. Is that correct? I would say so. When I was writing it, I was definitely thinking it was going to be straight up horror. Then I realized I'm a bit of a weenie. <laughs> <laughs> and so sometimes I think it is a spooky book. I have been told by different readers that it is a very spooky book. And I've been told by some readers that it wasn't very scary. So I think scary hmm. and horror definitely um, depends on your own personal tolerance. Yeah. I think with movies, it's easier to draw that line because you're like, you know what? I don't do gore. You know what? I don't do jump scares. But when it comes to our experiences, <laughs> readers with the written word, some people are very visual readers. And I think I am a very visual reader and writer. So I think the book might be spookier for those who are more like me. But I have, it, yeah, I have heard uh, from more hardcore horror readers that eh, it's not that scary, but the atmosphere is definitely there, which is where I think the gothic comes in. Yeah. You know, it has the classic cl gothic trappings of the big house, the young woman who kind of doesn't know what's going on, um, and madness. There's... Beatrice, the main character of the Hacienda, definitely questions at one point whether or not she's going crazy because she kind of gets gaslit um, yeah. by her sister-in-law and other people who live on the property um, who are just as afraid of the house as she is, but a little afraid to show it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I would call it gothic horror. Yeah. So the Hacienda is out now. And, um, of course, uh, this wall of blurbs is pretty exciting. Your peers came out, kind of came out and forced to... Um, blurb the book and, and say some incredibly nice things about Thank it. You. I thought Roshani Chaks. Roshani Chakshi. Yes. Uh, you, you said it better than me. A hypnotic sinister tale that's equal parts terrifying and luxurious. Uh, Kanyas's debut is a nightmare lined with velvet. And uh, Jan Krentz said that the Hacienda is a perfect gothic and Kanyas is not afraid to pull in the horror element. An impressive debut. That it is. Congratulations on the work. It's Thank you pretty, so much. Pretty good. Thank you so much. Incredible reviews. The Washington Post called it a gothic tale of doomed love and eventual spirits. So talk a little bit about the inspiration behind the book because, um, yeah, it did kind of um, give me the chills at, at points. And I was thinking that there's something very uh, hyper-realistic, even though you know, you're building elements of the novel in a kind of this classical style, mm -hmm. there is something, you know, very, very real about, uh, kind of being in a vacuous, you know, old, uh, space that has a deep history in set in the place. So talk a little bit about the kind of the inspiration behind it. That is a fantastic question. I think the, 
I have kind of like a two-parter answer. When it comes to the deeper inspiration for this book, um, I'm really afraid of the dark. And I knew I was always going to write a book about how that was deeply informed by the fact that I'm super afraid of the dark. And I think not only is that a fear that's profoundly universal, Mm. it's also one that kind of can pivot and mean different things in different situations. Are you afraid of the unknown? Are you afraid of things that you cannot control? Are you Mm -hmm. afraid of being prey? It really taps into that very like primal amygdala brain, something is hunting me or I am exposed. Mm -hmm. And these are things that we are really deeply, like we have a very deeply ingrained reaction to protect ourselves in those kinds of situations. So I think that writing about a fear of the dark, something that is so like primal and universal uh, helps take a story that I believe is very specific. You know, it's set in a specific time period. It has specific cultural, it's informed by specific cultural experiences and history, but I think it makes it quite universal to, I hope (laughs) that readers find it a universal experience of fear in its pages (laughs) because of that, you know, fear of the dark is not something that, all of us grow out of um, at all. And I think when it came to making it hyper-realistic, writing horror is so interesting from a process side. You know, like one of the reasons I was so excited to talk to you is because I get very nerdy about craft and process. So this is just like dessert for breakfast. I'm so excited. (laughs) Um, But I wrote a lot of fantasy before I wrote this book. In fact, I think I wrote exclusively fantasy. I dabbled in uh, a little bit of magical realism, was afraid of being typecast from, mm, mm-hmm. you know, my literal entire career as a Latina author. And some people I have seen or heard whispers of people on the internet calling this book magical realism. Reader, it is not. <laughs> it is huh. definitely horror. Um, yeah. But the thing about writing horror is that it really demands so much of the author in terms of vulnerability. Mm. Because as I was saying earlier about movies and jump scares and music and gore, I think TV and movies in the horror genre have a lot of tools at their disposal that we as writers do not. You know, we have little black squiggles on a page. And so it forces, I think this writing the genre forces you to be very precise, not only in language um, in order to control tone and atmosphere and pacing, but it also forces you to be precise about why exactly you are afraid of a thing and dig deeper to ask yourself and really get to the heart of it for you. Like, I think I'm now able to talk about my fear of the dark in more precise words and my fear of big creaky houses in more precise ways because I've (laughs) spent, you know, I spent a while writing this book. Um, I wrote it pretty quickly for, for my, for my, um, general process, but mm. I spent a lot of time revising it. And I've now, as it's going out into the world and reaching readers, I'm spending a lot of time talking about it and thinking about how I'm going to talk about it. So yeah, yeah, writing horror is something that has forced me to be more vulnerable about what really pushes my buttons in terms of being afraid. And I brought that to the page. And so it really... It, it really makes me very happy to hear that you found it hyper-realistic because yeah. that is something that I wanted. I wanted it to be a very, I wanted it to be a scary book. I knew I was writing horror when I started um, and I didn't know how exactly to do it because I'd only ever written maybe one or two short stories in the horror genre before. 
So huh. I swung for the fences. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Earlier in the show, I mentioned an invaluable resource for writers. Truth is the arrow, mercy is the bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories based on three decades of writing, failing, and trying again. Author Steve Almond is a beloved professor at Harvard and Wesleyan and the acclaimed New York Times bestseller of 12 books of fiction and nonfiction. And in Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, Steve employs the radical empathy he displayed as a co-host of the Dear Sugars podcast with Cheryl Strayed, where they explored the joys and trials of storytelling to explode myths that hold us back from writing our deepest and truest work. The book includes chapters on plot, character, and chronology, but travels far beyond the earnest intentions of most craft books. It also includes writing prompts to generate new work. Pulitzer Prize-winning author Richard Russo called it one of the best books on writing he's ever read, and also the funniest. Pick up a copy of Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories wherever you buy books, and add it to your TBR today. And just a quick aside to revisit the exclusive Writer Files Patreon community where subscribers get access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and a lot more. I know that for serious writers, it can be more distracting than ever to cut through the noise, stay productive, and home in on what's happening in the publishing industry. Over eight years, we've provided a looking glass into the habits of professional writers and publishing industry insiders. And as your humble host, I've decided to launch a membership-based Patreon for serious scribes to cut through the noise, swap tips and tricks, and hang out with like-minded peers. Just head over to patreon.com slash the writer files for bonus writing resources, monthly episode breakdowns, writer's happy hour, a community of your peers, ad-free episodes, and more. It's free to join to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash the writer files. Help us start something cool and special. Keep calm and write on. Yeah, well, I mean, there is something to be said about place and like the violence maybe of history in the past. And, you know, uh, you, you spoke a lo- some, some about, you know, where the idea came, came, comes from for a novel for you as you, I, I'm quoting here, a vague constellation of archetypes against a backdrop of atmosphere or vibes. But there is something intensely uh dark about that period in time specifically and you know and and different places throughout the world have a certainly have a different vibe you know based on like what historical violence happened there um or you know how how certain communities uh had have been treated or or mistreated Mm -hmm. yeah i really wanted to set i think i really wanted to read a book set in this period of mexican history because it was something that fascinated me for a long time. And, you know, I reached for that. I looked for it and I came up short. And so finally I decided as many writers do, like, this is a book I want to read. And so, Mm. God damn it, I guess I have to write it. (laughs) Rude. So I am fascinated by this period because like you said, every place has a different experience with violent histories and many communities got the short end of the stick when it came to colonialism specifically. And one thing that I find really fascinating about this period of Mexican history, the very early years of the Republic, is that it was a period of immense change. We come into the story with Beatriz at the end of an 11-year civil conflict 
which was Mexico's war for independence uh, from Spain. So it was an anti-colonial war, uh, mm-hmm. but it was also a, a class-based war for a lot of the time and yeah. a war between conservatives and liberals and people who thought there ought to be a republic and people who thought were more politically conservative and wanted to have an emperor and did for a very short period of time, but the liberals eventually prevailed. But not for forever, because there was another emperor in Mexico's history. Tune in for the 1860s. Things get messy again. <laughs> but there are so many themes in this period that come from the history of colonialism in Mexico that extend to the present. And so as a historian, not only is this period one of a massive shift, suddenly Mexico is independent. Suddenly we have new laws and we have new ideas about how we treat people who live in this country whether they are of indigenous or white descent and whether or not that actually gets the law gets put into practice, which spoiler alert, didn't really for a long time. Um, And still to some degree does not, but there is also quite a lot of continuity. So a lot of the, as I've just mentioned, um, there is a lot of tension in this period uh, that comes out of the Casta system or the, a a case system that existed in the Spanish Americas during mm-hmm. the colonial period, and its ghosts still remain in the form of racism and colorism in Latin America and its diaspora today. But basically, yeah. to boil it down to a sentence, um, one's uh, position in society and sometimes even one's legal status was determined by one's racial makeup, whether that was white coming from uh, Euro- Europe directly, white born in the Americas, indigenous, or even black descent. So your position in society was not if one was of a mixed background, one could advance in society, but that did not mean it was very easy. And there are many other intersections of gender and class that made that much more complicated. And so this was also a period in which women were beginning to have more autonomy, not because of uh, necessarily enlightened uh, understandings of the equality of genders, but because of the fact that so many men died during this 11 year period of civil strife that women were often widowed. They lost fathers, brothers, et cetera. And so often found themselves the heads of households and businesses, whether that was in the city or as is the case in the Hacienda in the countryside, they found themselves the head of agricultural businesses. And so I thought it was a really interesting, I I thought this, there was a lot of potential for tension in this period Mm -hmm. that I was just dying to sink my teeth into. So Mm. I think it's one thing that I find really interesting is I don't go on Goodreads. Um, Occasionally I get (laughs) tagged it. I don't. It is a cesspool authors. It belongs to readers and they can make of it what they wish. But I do get tagged in reviews on Instagram and Twitter. And sometimes Mm. when I'm like clearing out my notifications, I'll catch a glimpse of something here and there. And one review that really hit home for me was one that was written by a Filipino reader who wrote that They actually, even though the Spanish colonial experience in the Philippines, um, I'm less informed about it. Mm -hmm. I know it was definitely different from the Spanish colonial experience in Latin America and Mexico specifically, but there are echoes between the two with the role of Catholicism and uh, white supremacy that the reader found, uh, the reader felt like they saw a lot of themselves and their own cultural background in the text, which... I thought was really beautiful. <laughs> like mm-hmm. colonialism is deeply fucked up and it's um its ghost really veils a lot of societies today and hovers in the background and really haunts a lot of people's lives. But in, but I made that connection with a reader that I never imagined having 
before. So I thought that was great. Like colonialism sucks, but that's the silver lining. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty incredible. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously, um, the work speaks for itself and, and talk, um, about the process of, of writing the book. Cause as you mentioned, um, you're kind of working at times in the margins of, of your other life and Mm -hmm. defending, uh, a PhD dissertation and, and, you know, some stress, I'm sure some stresses, including a a pandemic that we've all, um, Mm -hmm. been going through, but yeah, talk about how you, you know, like what, what is your most prolific time look like? How are you, um, kind of structuring the work and, and ultimately, yeah. How are you, how are you? Yeah. I love talking about this, especially because this book in particular took my process and chucked it unceremoniously out the window. <laughs> like my dream experience when I'm writing a book and the one that I'm trying to replicate now, as I write book two from my publisher is I wake up at about, um, seven ish and I get to my desk in my office at home um, mm. sometime before eight and I start doing writing sprints. I'm a firm believer in writing sprints. Mm. Um, I do 40 minute sprints, um, with 20 minute breaks in between. And in that period, depending on what point I am in drafting right now, I'm zero drafting. So for me, that means telling myself the story before I air quotes first draft. Mm. <laughs> so I guess it's a, it's a form of a very messy first draft, but I call it a zero draft because that makes it not real and therefore easier to write. <laughs> and I have actually a list of my sprint splits right here. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yesterday, when I was writing in 40-minute chunks, I was Mm. aiming to write about 1,000 words in every 40 minutes, and I was averaging about 1,300 words. Um, But again, that's zero drafting. And when I'm actually drafting, that number is probably closer to um, 900 to 1,000 words every 40 minutes. So if I write, my dream is to write 4,000 words a day. That's my happy place. Um, Some books, I'm able to push that a little more. Uh, With the Hacienda, I was writing 6,000 words a day, which is... I think insane. Um, and some books require more time and thought and especially short stories. When I write short stories, none of this applies because it is a completely different beast, but Hmm. other books, things go a little bit slower necessarily. But for this book, I wrote the first 40,000 words in NaNoWriMo of 2019. Oh, wow. I had just gone on my honeymoon. Um, and I was in Mexico city when I, got a really heartbreaking rejection on a fantasy manuscript that my agent and I had on submission. And I was at a point in my career where I had had two manuscripts that were both fantasy fail on submission. So I thought, 
you know, I need to pivot because otherwise I'm never going to get this plane off the ground, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, so I threw myself wholeheartedly into this horror project at a time when, after I proposed my dissertation, I was hypothetically meant to be writing my dissertation. And uh, <laughs> I did not for this three-week period in NaNoWriMo. And then that winter, I, I put the manuscript away, sent it to my agent, waited for her comments. I came back to the manuscript after the, manu- after the pandemic had already started in March, in April of 2020. I had been teaching at my university for January, February, and March. And I, like many others, was absolutely at a loss of how to deal with being at home all the time. And home for me was like a 400 square foot studio apartment in Brooklyn with my husband, which is an itty bitty space. I no longer had an office (laughs) or even the semblance of one because he, my husband had to take over it for work from home. So I was at the kitchen table, you know, crammed up against the stove in my itsy bitsy New York kitchen. Um, And I thought the only way I could I I was reaching for like books that would keep me distracted and keep me away from the news. And I read some horror, I read some fantasy, but none of it was really like holding my attention Mm -hmm. and making everything else fall away, which is what I desperately wanted from my reading. And what is what that is what I have always sought for my reading is escapism. So I picked this book up again and I thought, you know, well, oh no, I'm too anxious to write horror right now. Oh no, I'm definitely too stressed. But I think because I was so anxious and stressed, because of what was going on around us, writing this book really saved me in a way. It mm. really helped everything else fall away. So I was writing like 6,000 words a day. I, re- I revised the first 40,000 words and then I pummeled through the end of the book in about two weeks. Wow. Uh, so I don't think, you know, after I finished that, I thought, oh, haha, I have figured out how to write book. This will <laughs> never be difficult again. <laughs> Right. No. Uh, writing book two has been a very different experience, as I think many authors can sympathize with. But that's kind of what my my ideal situation is like 4,000 words a day, steady, steady, steady. I can finish a book in like, let's say, six weeks. Um, when I'm really swinging for the fences, there was one day when I was writing The Hacienda that I wrote 10,000 words in a day. It was insane. I was like, my husband was on a business trip. I was like pacing the apartment in a haze. I was not myself. And that is like the high I am always chasing when, you know, I think there are people who talk about the muse or the genius as we understand it in like the Greek understanding, like feeling like somebody else is moving your hands across the keyboard. Hmm. And I think that spirit or that force does not just show up you know, you have to show up for it. You mm-hmm. can't let yourself be. So I guess this is maybe my advice. Yeah. Um, I think waiting for inspiration to strike is a recipe for sitting on your ass and getting no writing done. I think we really need to show up because you get your best ideas. And that spirit kind of or energy like possesses you. Mm-hmm. That creative energy really kicks off your unconscious, really roars forward and takes over when you're already in the act of writing. And so what I have done is create a writing practice where I sit at my computer or my Alpha Smart Neo, which is actually my preferred way of drafting because hmm. it's a very dumb writing device. It barely has a screen. And so I don't even feel like I'm writing. I just feel like I'm thinking out loud. And even hmm. when I'm not drafting a book, I'll sit at my desk every morning or in bed with this Alpha Smart Neo every morning and free write for at least an hour just to like have that 
exercise. It's like playing scales on the piano or doing athletic training of which I have absolutely no understanding, but I imagine <laughs> sporty people do drills <laughs> in order to stay in shape when they're in the off season. So that when it comes time to write a novel, you know, your brain isn't afraid of sitting down to write because yeah. it's like, Oh yeah, we do this every day. So yeah. Incredible. Incredible. Um, well, congratulations on the work. Of course I will link to your home base there isabelkanyas.com. Um, the book is The Hacienda, and uh, it has been described as Mexican Gothic meets Rebecca in this debut supernatural suspense novel set in the aftermath of the Mexican War of Independence about a remote house, sinister haunting, and the woman pulled into their clutches. Of course, uh, I, we wish you the best of luck with your fear of the dark, but do come back and visit us in the future. Is there anything else you want to leave us with? Um, just that I am so grateful to chat with you and hearing the blurb said out loud by someone. It's just like, I got chills. I was like, wow, I wrote that and people are reading it. And thank you. If you got, if your listeners pick up this book or have read it, thank you from the bottom of my heart. This book is my heart and soul. And it really means so much that it's reaching readers. Amazing. Amazing. Well, thank you again for your wisdom and for your, uh, inspiration. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for joining us for this file. And if you're a fan of the show, simply head over to writerfiles.fm for more. That's writerfiles.fm.